You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Please welcome Barbara Junis-Bai, who is Assistant Professor of Organizational Studies at Pitzer College in Southern California. And uh, she has very broad research interests. She's actually, I know that uh, she uh, has experience teaching at the Nazarbayev University in what is now known as Nur Sultan, uh, Kazakhstan, but formerly known as Astana. And she taught there for a number of years, so she had a lot of experience living in the region, and she's done research on Central Asian societies, and she'll talk about some of that today. Uh, she's published her work in Perspectives on Politics, European Asian Studies, Problems of Post-Communism, and if you subscribe to Post-Soviet Affairs, then you'll know that the, she has an article uh, with Azamat Junis Bai in the latest issue on uh, ardent, so-called ardent Democrats in uh, Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan. Today, her talk is entitled The Normative Foundations of Patronal uh, Presidential Rule, Examples from Central Asia. So please give her a warm welcome. And so I'm going to talk about my research that's at a scary preliminary phase. And it's, it's like been in this preliminary phase for a number of years because I haven't had a chance to work on it. Um, uh, and what I'm really interested in are like, as it says in my talk, like what are the normative underpinnings of patronal rule? Because a lot of people, a lot of scholars and the ways that we think about patronalism focus on material self-interest or instrumental relationships. Um, but if we take the literature on institutions seriously, we know that every institution, which is just like repetitive relationships, always have a normative aspect to them. And so I'm curious, about this normative aspect, and I'm also curious about your your response to my understanding of the normative aspect. So I'm really pleased to see lots of people from the region and experts from the region, and people have been in the region. Oh, I need that little. Okay, so I wanted to start off with a story, um, and my story is uh, in 2013, in, in the winter, in December 2013, I was in Astana visiting family and friends. And um, I got an email from one of my colleagues here in the United States who said that there is um, mass mobilization in Ukraine. Uh, people in the Maidan, even though it's sub-zero temperatures freezing, people were out protesting against Yanukovych. And then another one of my friends sent me, oops, wrong order, another one of my friends sent me this clip about Kazakhstan, and it also happened to be the first President's Day. And instead of people out in the street protesting the president, uh, at one university in, then form, in formerly known as Asana, that the, the president of that university had organized a mass um, celebration of Nazarbayev's birthday. Um, and so I thought that was a really interesting, like uh, a really interesting contrast between the two countries' experiences. And then w within like less than a month after this happening, um, we got news also that um, the first, um, the oldest daughter of then President Karimov had, was in deep trouble, um, and that she had been tweeting like crazy things and posting things on the, on social media about her family, her mom being. Um, under the spell of black magic, and that was why she was being pushed out of uh, a central place in, in the um, 
in politics and the economics of Kazakhstan. So I just wanted to highlight these three things happening kind of at the same time, really reveal in some ways the ways that these different countries, Uzbekistan, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, are placing quite different from each other, right? So if we compare them, we can say that um, the ways that they look different are uh, there's probably more pluralism, right? Ukraine looks more democratic. There is greater fear in Uzbekistan, right? Anybody close to the president, even his own daughter, could be imprisoned, yeah? And there's greater love for the president of Kazakhstan and maybe more like um, appreciation for the regime and less critique. That to me is like how we understand, like if we think about categorizing these countries, that's like the first thing that often comes to mind, but I want to challenge this differentiation. Um, all right, and I want to think of it this way. So I got markers. I'm going to marker out my argument. <clears throat> are the presidents, right? Patrons at the top, but then other patrons at different levels. So the key relationships are between patrons and clients, right? And the focus is on the nature of the relationship between them. And often this relationship is seen as um, rooted in self-interest. Patron has resources, clients want resources. Patrons need support, clients provide support. So there's a didactic, interactive relationship between the two of them and a kind of codependency. Um, so in addition to coercion and monitoring, what's really crucial to keeping a patron or a president in power is his ability to share spoils. So if the regime has lots of spoils or like there are lots of um, economic resources that elites across the board have access to, then it's more likely that the president will stay in power. Right? In, re in return for access to resources elites submit to and are loyal to, they support or they at least don't openly oppose the president. So this is the context of paternal presidentialism. And a lot of literature shows that actually, even though Ukraine looks very different when we look at the level of masses and the level of political culture and how active um, uh, people are in expressing their disaffection or their dissatisfaction with the regime at the level of elites, the, the patterns are similar to each other. I want to make a further argument. Not only are, is this pattern similar across all of these three regimes, but the three pictures that I showed you, uh, 2013 Maidan, 
2013, Gulnara Karimova. And 2013, pro-presidential birthday celebration. But actually, they're all related to the same dynamic, and they're all related to paternal presidentialism. So what's really interesting to me is the, and what I want to talk about today, is the relationship of the first family, the president's relatives, in all of these um, So I happened to have a conversation with a woman from Ukraine, and she was telling me that um, if we look at Maidan uh, 2013, not just through the lens of the masses, but through the lenses of elites, we saw or would see a lot of people formerly associated with the president, Yanukovych at that time, who had supported him and helped him get into power, actually were defecting to the opposition for a very interesting reason. And that is his son, Alexander. Has anybody heard the story? This story. So Alexander Yanukovych and people who are close to him, his friends, they were stealing businesses from other elites. Okay, that sounds very familiar, yeah? Um, Gulnara Karimova in 2013 got sidelined or expelled or expunged <laughs> um, for similar reasons because she was stealing businesses from other elites, but not only domestically, but foreign, right? So she had um, taken people hostage, employees of other international companies, Plus, I think a year later, she was embroiled in a scandal of embezzling money with uh, Swedish money laundering in Switzerland and bribery, um, like $300 million in bribes from a Swedish telecom company, right? But the turn, um, as I will show, hopefully will show or try to convince you, the turn is why it was that she fell from grace was because... Um, at some point, the stealing of businesses just becomes too much. It's not tenable. In 2013, the pro-presidential um, celebration um, in honor of Kazakhstan's pre first president's birthday, I'm going to argue, was also related to the same thing. Because what President Nazarbayev had done successfully was um, when Rahat Aliyev also had created this disaffection among other elites because he similarly was taking people hostage associated with murder and stealing other people's businesses, the president clamped down. Rahat Aliyev was, he fell from grace, he was sent abroad, right? Um, president Nazarbayev showed to other elites that he was not um, the father of only those who he's close to, who are his relatives, but he's fathered the entire nation and fathered all of the elites. And that's why there's consolidation in Kazakhstan and also why there's consolidation in Uzbekistan, but not consolidation in Ukraine. That's going to be my main argument. So if we look at all of the post-Soviet patronal presidential states, there's like 12 of them, I think, if we include Transnistria. So they would be what? Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia, mm, Belarus, Ukraine, Russia, all the Central Asian countries. And then there's a really interesting work by uh, Margarita Balmaceda, who studies Transnistria, which is a break breakaway republic in Moldova. And she argues the same dynamic is happening. So what's super fascinating to me is there are all these scholars who are doing a case study. I did a case study on Kazakhstan. Actually, I wrote two papers on Kazakhstan in the fall of Rahat Aliyev that documents this um, usurpation and greed that alienated a large swath of elites against him. Uh, Margarita Balmaceda documented the same thing in Transnistria. Lots of people have documented the same thing happening with Akayev and Bakiyev in Kyrgyzstan. Um, there's at least two works, one by Anders 
Osland and another scholar in the same Journal of Democracy, I can't remember who the name is right now, they also document the same thing happening in Ukraine. But nobody has put all of this stuff together and all these different cases to show that maybe there's a pattern here. So I'm hoping that I'm going to be the first one, if I can get my act together and actually write something. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. So that leads us to my next point, which is, okay, so I just said that there are all of these countries that have this patronal presidentialism, right? Not just these countries, but I said there are 12 of them, but not all of them have had um, problems with the first family, right? So of all the countries that I listed, countries that have problems, that have had, okay, let me step, take one step back. So in addition to all of these things that make paternal presidentialism work, I'm going to say that there's all, another, another key feature, and that's the central role of the first family, or the president's relatives. The president's relatives have a special, oops, special place in this system. And I think, uh, like in a, a previous publication, I said that they're like those who are the inner circle, and they include the president's family, but also like his closest allies, and then there's like an outer circle who are other elites. But here I want to highlight the importance of the first family in patronalism. If we think about all of those 12 countries, not all of them have actually had problems with the first family, in the sense that the first family has not always caused um, public overt conflict, right? That's, that's visible and documentable. There might be other kinds of conflict that we don't know about because we don't have access to that information, right? So <clears throat> in Kazakhstan, in Kyrgyzstan, in Uzbekistan, in Ukraine, and in Transnistria. And there might be other cases that you know about, but I don't know about. And if you do know, I'm happy to hear about them, right? So in all these cases, the first members of the president's family have done something, and I'm going to argue it has to do with the stealing of one of those businesses, that have fomented, fomented overt conflict, political conflict, or contestation. Um, but only this one, so these three here, we can say that we can link that disaffection with the first family to some kind of revolution or some kind of mass mobilization, right? So these have like a mass mobilization, anti-regime component, and sometimes it has to do with elections, but sometimes not with elections, right? So in Transnistria, I think like in 2005, the first the parliamentary elections where the opposition um, gained power, and then in 2010, former President Smirnov was overthrown, right, in an election. So here is Smirnov's family. Here I'm going to say that it was Yanukovych. Is that a, what letter is that? The Y? Is that right? Oh, B. And then here it would be Akayev and Bakiev. We don't hear very much about these cases. <clears throat> so even though they had open political contestation at the elite level, it stayed and it actually was resolved in both of these countries. Um, so I am selecting on the dependent variable. Those of you who take statistics or <laughs> research methods, you're not supposed to do that. I don't have very 
creation, right? But I'm gonna argue that it's important for theoretical reasons, for theory building. So we had an elite um, contestation in Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan. In Kazakhstan, it was 2001 to two, and also like in 2007. In Uzbekistan, um, it, surrounding his daughter, in two, uh, the president's daughter in like 2013, 14. But they didn't lead to these mass mobilizations. And I'm gonna argue that it's because of norms. Because of the upholding of norms that the presidents um, successfully pursued. And I'm gonna say that, that these cases actually were a case where elites complained to the president that their children were taking over other people's business and the presidents didn't respond or didn't respond quickly enough. Okay, so that's why I'm focusing on this one and this one. And lots of people are from Kazakhstan or have been to Kazakhstan or studied Kazakhstan, so I'm sure you know a lot about that particular case. Okay. Stay there for a second. All right, so I just wanted to tell you a few quotes. So I was going to write them down, but we're out of time. Here they are. They're just quotes that I've come across in different things I've read, some in the scholarly press and some in the popular press. And some in my interview. So the first one is from, is from my interview, when I, I had done some interviews in Kyrgyzstan about President Akayev. And many people, when I asked people about the president and his downfall, here was the response that I typically got. He was a very weak president. And then when I asked them, what does that mean, weak? People would say, he couldn't control his family. Hmm, super interesting. All right, then I have another quote. This one is uh, Islam Karimov's grandson. He did an interview with the BBC in 2013. <coughs> he says, it's illogical for the president to destroy my mother, who's Gulnara Karimova, in 2013, because then he would just undermine his own self, he would just undermine his own self, because in Uzbekistan, the reputation he would have after this is this. How can a man rule the country if he can't rule his own family? And this is from a scholarly work by Alexander Motol. He writes, it's a really great sentence, while a sultan may be despised, he dare not ever appear silly. And this next, I've got just two more, or actually three more. This one is from Mukhtar um, Ablyaza, who was one of the founders of the Democratic Choice of Kazakhstan movement. He was a former oligarch in, from Kazakhstan. He wrote this um, informal biography that then later I guess was retracted and he said he didn't write it, but this is a quote from there. President Nazarbayev began to explain that he could not do anything else regarding Aliyev because of the family. How could we ask that he cut off his own hand? And then uh, Nazarbayev in 2015 um, gave an interview with uh, Kazakh commercial television, Kateka. Uh, where he's talking about the years of independence, but a lot of that um, documentary is actually about Rahat Aliyev, which is interesting. And Nazarbayev said, regarding Aliyev, don't people recall that I jailed the father of my three grandchildren? And then my last one is, this is by a, a BBC journalist, Natalia um, Antalyeva in 2014. Karimov has always been merciless toward his opponents. All Uzbek opposition leaders are either in jail, exiled, or died. But a disobedient daughter poses an entirely new challenge. 
So in all of these quotes, I'm hinting at you. I think that they're all super juicy. But what I'm trying to say is like, the family and how the president responds to the family when other elites come and say, your kid is out of line, matters a lot and reveals to us a lot about norms. All right, so one thing I forgot to do, because I got ahead of myself, is this isn't just the only thing that paternal presidentialism is, right? Uh, one of the claims or one of the ways of understanding paternal presidentialism is that people don't care so much about ideology or they don't care about abstract ideas or political platforms, mostly they're interested in resources and competing for resources. So it's a resource-driven, the description of patronal presidentialism is very resource-driven. Um, so there are these socially acknowledged personal networks of loyalty and mutual exchange, all surrounding this coordination and competition for scarce resources. Uh, the role of the patron is, is to dispense spoils to clients who reciprocate by offering general support and assistance, I said that earlier. Every boss or patron supports his own people or clients not because they're not only because they're his and it's best to work with them, right? You work with your own people, but also by providing protection to them, he creates an indebtedness and a guarantee that they will protect him in return. So one thing that's common across all of these is this focus on self-interest and resources and relationships based on economic self-interest and um, a fear of being removed from that system. So the underlying logic of patronalism is essentially material in nature, how I've described it, the way that other scholars have described it. So spoils of patronage is a or maybe the key mechanism or glue that binds actors to one another and to the system and the regime. Patronage is an integral and integrative component of patronal rule from the top to the bottom. So we have that's what corruption, right, and nepotism. Elite compliance and cooptation and loyalty is induced via the provision of material privilege, and these are just quotes from different scholars. Selective incentives, scarce commodities, private economic wealth, personalized benefits, personalized exchange of concrete rewards and punishments. We don't see anywhere in this language anything about norms, which is so, so, so interesting, right? It's been my question, but what about norms? So if we look at other kinds of scholarship, like Weber or, um, I might have a quote later, right? So we know that purely material interests and the calculation of advantage as the basis of solidarity is a very unstable situation. Material goods are important, of course. I'm not saying they're not central, but they're not sufficient in and of themselves, right? So as Weber says, there, all of these relationships or institutions are governed by custom in addition to material calculation of advantage. And custom is like expectations, what you did before, what you're gonna continue doing, your norms, your understanding of what's fair, what's not fair. Right? So we know that patronage and patronalism is an institution, even if it's not formal, or if it's informal. Institutions don't have just distributive features, they also have instrumental and symbolic functions. And they're governed by customs, rules, values, expectations. And I find that the literature generally ignores, literature on patronalism generally ignores these things. Oh, Martin Olson, yes, Martin Olson Institution. Okay, so they say, they actually don't, so what would, sometimes you can think about an institution as a place, like University of Wisconsin is an institution, or Pitzer College is an institution. Martin Olson reminds us that institution is not so much the physical or the people, but the norms and the rules and the expectations and the relationships that are bounded by that, or inside that institution. O'Donnell also calls um, an inst institution as follows. Regularized patterns of interaction, regularized patterns of interaction that are known, practiced, and regularly accepted by those who expect to continue interacting under the rules and norms formally or informally embedded in those patterns. 
right? So here we have a material and normative basis. And what I'm going to argue is, is when in these cases, when the president's um, children overstep the bounds of what they were allowed to have in a paternal system, they violated the rules. They violated the norms. And if the norms are violated, that says something about the president, which goes back to those quotes. How can a president rule a country if they can't even control his own family? In the literature on post-Soviet paternal rule and their resilience versus vulnerability or their invincibility versus their um, the probability that they will fall, there's a lot of discussion of perceptions, right? So if people perceive the president to be invincible, he is invincible. As soon as they start to doubt that invincibility, that's when problems start. And I'm going to argue that the way that the president responds to the children when other elites complain says something about the president's weakness or strength, which is also central to perceptions of his power and his right to remain in power. Okay. Um, all right, so there are these unwritten or informal rules that structure expectations. Expectations about what? Um, about conflicts, how they'll be resolved. So this is conflicts. How is the president going to resolve these conflicts when his children step in and start taking other elites' um, uh, resources? About what's appropriate and fair. What is the level of fair distribution like? We know that the first president's family have the right to more than other people. That's fair. Everybody accepts that that's fair. All the elites accept that that condition is fair. When does it become not fair? Um, and also, how are different actors expected to behave? Like, can you just go and step in and say, I really like this restaurant, I want it. Or I'm the president's daughter, give it to me. Uh, or I'm the president's son-in-law, give it to me, <laughs> right? How should spoils, resources, and benefits to be distributed? So. How do we know who gets what? Norms tell us that. President's family gets telecommunications. They get TV, radio, TV and radio stations. They get oil and gas. Other people can have banks, or they can have a restaurant, right? Different things. They all, norms also tell us about reciprocity and mutual obligation. So the president is the president because he performs, of course, these functions that he does, and we expect that he will continue performing those functions. There's a relationship of reciprocity. Should the president continue to do this, I will, as an elite, continue to support him. But it is there is mutual obligation. So if somehow the president's children start to break the norms and the president doesn't fulfill his role as the ultimate arbiter of norms and conflicts, then are elites obligated to him still to support him? Um, what happens if obligations and expectations are not met? And uh, what happens if norms are violated? And what about punishment? So all norms raise, if we focus on norms as like the central lens through which we look at paternal presidential, all these really interesting questions arise that we might miss if we only looked at material um, basis of paternalism. Okay. So I would like to conceptualize patronage in a slightly different way. Not so much material, but as a set of iterative regularized and enduring mutual relations that are kept and nurtured by joint responsibility and joint obligations and that are bounded by institutional rules and expectations. So here's the definition that I've devised as of late. Uh, so my alternative to the standard material view of patronage is that it's an ongoing series of multi-layered and known social interactions. It's not just two people, right? So if the president's son or daughter starts to steal from other elites, even if they did steal from me, I still know about it. It's not a secret, 
right? There's known interactions. I know how much this person got the last time there was resource distribution. I know how much they got this time, right? So there's all this information that's out there. Maybe it's not written down anywhere, but people have a general sense. <clears throat> An ongoing series of multi-layered and known social interactions, the value of which is generated both through the material exchange of favors and resources, and equally important through the establishment, observance, and upholding of institutional norms that lend meaning, order, and predictability to that exchange. Um, so I think norms are super interesting because they don't just um, set expectations about how patronage is and should be allocated. They help us figure out like what elites consider fair and not fair, and what's the role of the president um, in deciding how to disperse uh, spoils. All right, so the shared understanding is what makes patronage norms a crucial regulatory and accountability mechanism. So if the president is not carrying out his obligations to the elite as a whole, right, if he's not doing what he's supposed to do, then that means that he has to be held accountable for those actions. And elites are the ones who are going to hold him accountable. Not because they care about democracy or not necessarily because they care about um, regime change or reforms, but because they care about maintaining that system. And they care about their place in that system. And knowing, being able to predict in the future that, that resources are going to be distributed in the way that everybody accepts. And there's not going to be this great shift where suddenly different people get more things than other people. Um, so I am using, actually, not so much Kyrgyzstan, but Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan and the role of the first family in, uh, especially children who took other people's businesses and took other people's assets in fomenting this conflict over patron. And I come up with these two things, and this is my last slide. I have these two norms. One of them I call the norm of differential access. So of course the president's family gets more than everybody else. Of course they get first dibs, right? Of course they get access to oil and gas. Like if we look at, uh, if we made charts of um, resources in Uzbekistan and resources in Kazakhstan, we would see that the president's family gets more and better, right? They ha that's differential access right there. That's fine. But there's a second norm that's also important, and I call that the, relative, the norm of relative fair play. There's a sense that within this overarching system of differential access where those closest to the president and his relatives get more, they get special positions in government, they get all of these different resources that I already mentioned, there still has to be some relative fair play. There is a limit. So you can't, presidents, often you'll hear like in, in um, the ways that elites have described their move to the opposition in response to um, the president's children is it was like bezpriziel. There was like no limit, right? They acted outside the bounds of the norms, and that's when it became no longer just differential access, but a violation of norms. And if we don't have this sense of, I mean, if we don't have a second norm of fair play, then that means that those closest to the president could just actually take over the entire economy and take over all of the government, and that would be okay, and they could squeeze everybody else out. But it's this ex-second norm of relative fair play that says, well, there is some border. Now the critique of my analysis is, what is that border? Can I make a chart? Can I say like, oh, the president's family can have this much, but then as soon as they do this, I think that in different situations it's going to be different. But it's interesting because in the ways that in the scholarly literature and also popular understandings of these um, conflicts and whether or not they spun out of control so the president can, couldn't control it, always involve this sense among elites president's children took more, you abused their positions in some way that was no longer acceptable and that made the president look like 
not the president or the father of all elites, but a president of those who are closest to him. And that makes him look weak. He looks like the hostage of those who are his relatives versus the all-seeing um, and like to some degree neutral arbiter of all the state. The end. <laughs>